Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Exodus. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Um, John Bunyan was a, a Puritan in the 17th century. He wrote a fictional allegorical account that's uh, it's become a, a Christian classic now. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. We've got a, a young group of guys that are going through this book right now, actually. And, and part of this story, the story is about Christian. A Christian on his journey is traveling on his way to the celestial city. And he goes from scene to scene, place to place, town to town, And it's about his experience of walking with the Lord through this world that's often difficult. And in part of his journey, he goes through a place called Vanity. And in the town of Vanity is is a fair there. It's a perpetual fair. It's called Vanity Fair. And I want to read for you just a a little excerpt from this. So bear with me. It's It's a few slides as I go. Bunyan writes this. He says, The fair is kept all year long. It beareth the name Vanity Fair because the town where it is kept is lighter than vanity, and also because all that is sold or cometh is vanity. Bunyan continues, This fair is no new erected business, but a thing of ancient standing. Therefore, at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts, as harlots, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, and blood. Here are to be seen too, and that for nothing, for free, you can see thefts here, murders, adulteries, false swears, and that of a, a blood-red color. Uh, Bunyan's description of Vanity Fair goes on and on, and this is just a, a short piece of it, but Essentially, what he's attempting to do is to describe the sin-filled world, the fallen world in which we live, and the infinite pleasures and delights that are offered to us. Um, It's his version of Romans 1, if you will. Everywhere you go, everywhere you turn, sin is some way infecting someone or something in this world. It's the trappings of desire that are many and multifaceted in a world that has fallen like we live in. And it reflects this truth that sin is not only all around us in life, but it is actually in us and through us. Uh, For those of us who have the power of the gospel, have trusted Jesus Christ, sin has been defeated definitively at the cross, but it's not completely annihilated until we are with the Lord Jesus in glory. Uh, One theologian put it this way, human wrongdoing and the threat of it mars every adult's work day, every child's school day, and every vacationer's holiday. We are both complicit in and molested by the evil of our race. Cornelius Plantinga had put it this way, famously stated that sin contaminates every scalpel that's designed to remove, remove it. That sin has a thousand faces. And throughout church history, sin has been labeled in, in three ways. Sin is original, it is actual, and it is indwelling. Sin is original in the fact that the original Adam and Eve, the first created people ever by God, were the first sinners into this world and brought sin into this world when they disobeyed God and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that original sin, it passes on through their bloodline to all of us as well. It is actual, meaning that all of us actually sin. We don't become sinful when we sin. We sin because we're sinful. 
in Adam from the original sin. It is indwelling, meaning that, again, we've got this sin nature in us, even though being delivered by Christ, if we know him through the gospel, there's this, this remnant of fleshly Adam in us that remains, and we will battle with indwelling sin until we are with the Lord in glory. Um, the great church father, Augustine, used three famous metaphors to describe the nature of sin. He said that sin is a disease, sin is a power, and sin is a tremendous guilt that goes along with it. Sin is not just the actions that we do in violating God's law. Sin is actually a disease. It's a hereditary disease. It's passed down from one generation to the next. Unfortunately, this is a disease that has no earthly cure. This is a spiritual sickness that can only be solved with a spiritual solution, solution and a spiritual cure. Sin is not just a disease. Sin is a power. We are all born into this world as slaves to sin. In John 8, 34, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everybody who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's been said that the worst kind of uh, chains, the worst kind of slavery, is the, are the chains that you cannot see. And every 12-step program knows this in the world. The first step to defeating sin's power, sin's slavery over you is to admit that you do not have the power to defeat it. The person who thinks he has the strength to defeat sin in and of himself or defeat whatever ailment that you have is the, is the person who's crippled the most by its slavery. The person who admits he has no power to overcome sin and the problems and the difficulty is finally starting to get the power to overcome it because they're admitting it. Sin is a spiritual disease. And sin is also a power. And even though sin is essentially destructive, it is markedly generative. Sin is like a cancer. It kills by reproducing itself over and over again. Sin is a plague that spreads by contagion. It's like a river that keeps branching into more and more tributaries throughout every facet in all of our lives. Exodus 15, uh, 22. Uh, thanks for joining us at Tulsa Bible Church this morning. We're going to talk about sin, okay? <laughs> Exodus, <laughs> Exodus 15, 22, all the way through 17, 7. This is the wilderness wanderings for Israel. And listen, this passage is all about sin. It's about a cycle of sin that continues in the hearts of the Israelites over and over again. If, if there's a takeaway from Exodus 15, we'd, we're learning a lot about God that he is, he is healer, God is provider. Um, God is the life-giving sustenance and source for everything and our well-being. But we also learn that ultimately what not to do here. Israel gives us uh, an example of this is what not to do as you walk with the Lord in a fallen world. As a nation, they grumble, groan, and they go astray. Meanwhile, the Lord is loving them, leading them, and looking out for them. As is often the case with our own sin, Israel keeps sinning in the same way over and over and over again. Chuck Swindoll actually describes uh, what's happening here in Exodus as a, a wilderness cycle of sin. And so you see five steps in this cycle as Israel is walking with the Lord in a new and unknown territory. Number one, they enjoy the abundance of God. 
abundance leads to expectation, number two. Expectation ultimately leads to disappointment. Disappointment leads to complaint, Israelites, against Moses, effectively against God. Complaint leads to God's provision. He still provides for them. He still loves them and shows them grace. So I want to look at this passage, and and what I like to do is, is develop somewhat of a theology of sin. We're going to talk about just two things. What is sin from the perspective of what's happening for the Israelites in the wilderness? And number two, how does it work? How does sin work in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives? Ultimately, that'll lead us to the sin solution, uh, which is found in Christ and in the gospel. As you look at Exodus 15, 22 through 17, 7, these are um, known as the murmuring stories in Exodus. It's named that because each story depicts Israel as, as complaining, groaning, or murmuring over and over again about how hard their life is in the wilderness. From 1522 through 26, Israel is in the wilderness of Shur. They go three days with no water in the wilderness, and they complain and they grumble against God and against Moses. He leads them to Marah, which in Hebrew literally means bitter. You might recall the story of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Uh, God leads the Israelites to bitter water that they cannot drink for three days after having no water. In chapter 16, he leads them into the wilderness of sin. There's no Uh, really world word significance there as we understand sin in the English language and the wilderness of sin. It's called the wilderness of sin where they don't have any food. It's about two months now, two and a half months into their wilderness journey. They have nothing to eat. And so again, they complain and God provides for them manna in the wilderness of sin. And chapter 17, verses one through seven, God leads them to Rephidim where again, there's no water and he leads them to a place that Moses renames Massa and Meribah, or testing the Lord. It's a place of uh, testing and grumbling against the Lord is what the Hebrew means there. Many people teach these stories as a rite of passage for Israel. They had been redeemed in their infant stages with the God Almighty that they have come to know in Egypt. Uh, Now they are learning more about him, learning to trust him and grow in him. Uh, They have gone from Egypt, where they saw the miraculous display of God's power, to now the wilderness, where they will see the miraculous display of God's presence and providing for them and keeping them. Along the way, Israel is going to have to make a choice, and they have to make this choice over and over again. The choice is very simple. Do you want to go back to the comforts, safety, and security of Egypt? Or will you take the much riskier route of walking with the Lord in a wilderness? in places where you will have to trust him, one step at a time, one day at a time. Israel, in short, must get out of their comfort zones. And if you want something you never had, you have to be willing to do something you've never done. Right, church? We've got many ministries in our church right now. We're, thinking that we're rethinking the way that we do local missions at Tulsa Bible Church. We're thinking the, rethinking the ways that we do our budgeting at Tulsa Bible Church. We're rethinking the way that we do small groups. Our ministry leaders aren't using the same means that we've used in the past to progress forward because it's a different time and a different day. Uh, The seven last words of every dying church, 
but we have never done that before. Israel has never walked with the Lord in the wilderness before. They're going to have to get out of their comfort zone, and they're going to have to do things differently than when they were in Egypt. And that's a good thing for the nation of Israel. Problems aren't solved by the same means that got you into those problems in the first place. Israel has a choice. They're either going to step forward in growth with God, or they're going to step backward in slavery in Egypt. That choice is before them, and it's before us every single day of our Christian life. We can either take steps forward in our walk with God, or we can go backward into the slavery of sin that once held us captive apart from Christ. While this passage teaches a lot about sin, it also teaches a lot about faith, what it means to trust God on a daily basis, to long for, to love him, to see his provision over our hearts and over our lives. Let's talk about sin a little bit more. What is it? Sin, number one, what is it? Look down at Exodus 15, and I'm going to read 22 through the end of the chapter. Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and he there tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and you will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. You probably know that um, Rapha in Hebrew is the name for healer. Verse 27, they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Now, just like the location of the Red Sea crossing that we talked about last week, we don't really know exactly where Israel is when they come into the wilderness of Shur. We don't know where Shur is located specifically. The Hebrew word for Shur means wall. Uh, most people think that this was one, again, the dividing walls between the territory of Egypt and now into the Sinai Peninsula. It's actually mentioned six times in the Old Testament. You'll see references to Shur in Genesis and 1 Samuel. You're reading the accounts of David. I know one of our classes, the ambassadors, are going through 1 Samuel right now. David and Saul go through the wilderness of Shur uh, in that part of 1 Samuel. What I want you to note in verse 22 how many days Israel was into the wilderness. Verse 22 tells us that it's been three days since they crossed the Red Sea. And you might remember back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18, when God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and to go to Egypt to ask for his people to be redeemed, to be let go, that they might go three days into the wilderness. This is the second reference to this three-day journey. Moses originally asked Pharaoh for it. He didn't give it to him. He went anyway three days into the wilderness. And so now here we are in the book of Exodus so that ultimately they could sacrifice to the Lord their God. However, the Israelites aren't sacrificing. They're complaining. They're not surrendering. They're grumbling against Moses and against God. Now the question related to their grumbling is this, what shall we drink? 
And ultimately, when you read that question, it doesn't really sound very threatening. It sounds actually very reasonable, right? What, what should we drink? It's been three days. We've had no water. Moses, can you at least supply us with something? It's not a terrible question. It's not outrageous. It's not unfair. It's not unreasonable that the Israelites are asking this question. Rather, it's the attitude that accompanied it that tells us that something is wrong in their hearts. We know that this is not just an innocent question. We know that this is a complaint because of the parallel statement that comes before it in verse 22 and and through 24. Second, they were grumbling against Moses, which is to say this. They are looking for Moses to provide them for something that only God can ultimately provide. And listen, what is sin? That's exactly what sin is. Sin is making something, anything, more important in your life than God. Sin is looking to something or someone more than you look to God. Sin is, is ultimately, it's putting God in the margins of your life. It's marginalizing God. Maybe at the Red Sea crossing, the Israelites trusted God and trusted him alone, but now three days later, they're back to putting their faith in people. They're back to trusting things, situations, circumstances, and people more than they're ultimately trusting God. I want you to skip over to chapter 16. Look at verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Um, verse, verse 3 is a, a pretty choppy translation in English, especially in the ESV. It says, Would that we have died. Uh, typically, we don't talk like that. Uh, the New Living Translation, NIV, New American Standard, the Holman Christian Bible, they, also, they all start that phrase a little differently. It goes something like this. If only we had stayed in Egypt, we wouldn't have a need for food and bread and meat. And that phrase, if only, again, tells us a little bit more about sin and what sin is. Jonathan Edwards has a a famous thought here. He says this. He says, sin turns the heart into fire. Just as there has never been a fire that has said, enough fuel, I am fine now, there's never been a sinful heart that said, I have had enough. When we sin in the Christian life, it's like pouring fuel onto the fire. And the more fuel you pour onto the fire, the more fuel it's going to need, the more oxygen it's going to need to keep itself burning bright and hotter and hotter. It necessitates more fuel as you go. One of my favorite pastors has said that there's an if only behind and underneath every desire and every longing for sin. There's an if only behind and underneath every desire for sin. Whatever you label as if only, whatever you say to yourself, if only I had blank. I would finally be satisfied, happy, and content in life. Whatever you say that about, that's your slave master. That's your idol. That's your sin. If only I had 
more money. If only I had a bigger retirement account. If only I had a better job. If only I had a spouse. If only I had a relationship that gave me happy. If only I didn't have this in my life. Things would finally be fine. All of those things. If only I had approval. If only I had significance. It's slavery. What is, what is sin? Sin is ultimately, it's, it's slavery. It's looking to things to give to you what only God can give. It's a violation of God's holy, perfect character in our lives. It's an unsatisfaction with who God is in turning to other things to replace God with things, people, or circumstances. Number two, how does it work? <clears throat> I want to add just a, a little bit more to the account in Exodus 16 here. And we're going to turn the page from Exodus, and I want you just to hold your place, but uh, turn over to Numbers chapter 11, okay? I wish I could spend a little bit more time here and, and develop these further, but I think this is where I want to camp out for a little while at least. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers also has an account of Israel in the wilderness wanderings. It goes into much more detail than we have in Exodus. Its purpose is different than the purpose of Exodus, but the situations, the circumstances are the same. Um, when you get into Numbers 11, again, I don't want to do uh, injustice to the text of Exodus, but I do want to flesh this out and help you see a little bit about what's going on here. Presumably, in Numbers, uh, years have passed now, years have progressed. Remember, the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and they're eating manna that God provides, and they're going from water source to water source that God provides. Uh, really miraculous journey for them. Skip down to verse 5. This is going to sound a lot like Exodus first, chapter 16. Verse 5, again, the Israelites complain and they murmur, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. What is a leek? I should know these great, great and wise things. I got a degree from Dallas Seminary. Brad, I don't know what a, I don't know what a leek is. Uh, you guys that are actually... It's a green onion? Okay. All right, thanks. This is good to know. Uh, verse 5, the garlic. Verse 6... But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So they grumble and complain about nothing to eat. God provides manna on a daily basis in the wilderness, except for the seventh day. He provided enough on the sixth day so that they could store it up and eat it on the seventh day. They've been eating nothing but manna for these years and years in the wilderness. Now they complain again. All we have is this manna. We want meat. And so they ask God for meat. Skip down to verse 18 of chapter 11. And say to the people, this is the Lord talking to Moses, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? That's a good, this is a good passage for men's ministry, I feel like. You know, we need some meat. For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not just eat one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils, and it becomes loathsome to you. 
Because, he says, you have rejected the Lord who is among you. You have wept before him, saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Now, how does, how does sin work? Uh, you probably heard me say this before. Not all addictions are sin, but all sin is addictive in nature. And sin works exactly like addiction. Uh, in other words, if you were to examine the nature of addiction in your lives and in your hearts, you would essentially be examining the nature of sin and how it works in our lives. And here's why. No matter how addictions start, um, they always center, they always begin in distress. Something happens in your life that causes you uh, to be in a a place of, of worry, of stress, of concern. And so it's there, it's in those times that you turn to something other than God to relieve that distress. You turn ultimately to an agent. When people experience distress, they turn to an agent to relieve it. And here's how you know that you have a sin problem. Here's how you know you're an addict. You know you're an addict when you start turning to the same agent that caused your sin problem in the first place. And a cycle begins to emerge. The driver of all agents is desire, longing. It's not just a longing of the stomach. It's not just a longing of the mind. It's not just a longing of the experience. It's a longing and it's a desire of the heart. One theologian put it this way, addiction taps into desire the way a blackmailer might garnish your wages. Every time you meet a demand, it escalates. Every time you recover self-respect, the will to love, or any vital resource, it gets sapped away by this parasite. And before too long, in your struggle against sin and addiction, before too long, a tolerance effect will take place. A tolerance effect is built Whatever comforts that you originally found in this agent, it takes more of it to experience the exact same thing. Uh, The experience of it, the joy of it, begins to fade. And so you feed yourself with more of whatever that agent is. Now you don't need just one piece of juicy gossip. Now you need four or five pieces of juicy gossip. Now you don't need to call one person and tell them what's going on that they have no business being involved with. Now you got to call four or five people and tell them on what is none of their business. Tolerance takes you from one drink to four drinks to five drinks, whatever the situation might be. Before long, you've had so much of it, it's coming out your nostrils, and you begin to loathe it. All right. Turn back to um, Exodus chapter 17. Now, Exodus 17 is eerily similar to Exodus 15, at the end of the chapter 15 that we read. Uh, Look at Exodus 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And that's, listen, that's no exaggeration from Moses there. Uh, the people have become unruly. And when you look to things and to people to do for you what only God can do, you begin to talk and act in these ways. You hold people to standards that they can never be held to. Ask them to do things that they can never do and accomplish for you in a healthy way. 
What do, we, what do we learn from this? What are the takeaways? Life lessons from wilderness wanderings. I want to go at least talk about one thing in terms of sin. Sin should not be discussed, confessed, or acknowledged with an attitude of sentiment. When you talk about sin in your life, sin is not sentimental, sin is detrimental. There's a really good book called Openness Unhindered by Rosaria Butterfield. I really encourage you to read it. She's got two chapters on sin, confession of sin, and repentance of sin. I've stolen a lot of material from her in this. Um, Butterfield says, you must never become sentimental about your sin. We are called to put it to death in the Christian life, to mortify our sinful nature, to kill it over and over again. Genesis tells us that sin is crouching behind the door and its desire is for you. First Peter says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is not something to be sentimental about. Sin is detrimental for the Christian. Believers must deal with sin in the posture of combat, not comfort, warfare, not waffling. Puritans talked a lot about the indwelling nature of sin and how to overcome it to fight against sin on a daily basis. Part of what that means is the old man inside of us is dead. It's been rendered dead because of the cross of Jesus Christ. But like a tree that is cut at the root, it often sprouts green leaves at the base. Reminds me of a line from um, The Princess Bride. It's mostly dead. We still deal with it. We still deal with old habits previous lifestyles. We still cycle through sin patterns, often far too, too often in our sinful Christian lives. Uh, sometimes God gives us victory over those things, and we can walk in victory over sin because of the cross of Jesus Christ, and because of our identity in Christ. And sin is mutiny against a Christian Sin is both precedes us and dogs us. It doesn't matter if we have a good reason to sin or not. We do. Sin never takes a Sabbath rest. It is always hunting. It is always hounding you. So we don't just acknowledge sin in our life. We confess sin and we repent of sin. Here's what I want to say to to many Christians. You guys know what's happening in the culture all around us. The denominations that are being split over these kind of things. Asking your friends to understand sin from your point of view is a moral anesthetic that does not work in the Christian life. Asking your friends to help you confess and kill sin is the, is the victory that you need through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit work in your life. Trying to make sin more palpable, more acceptable, and more sentimental is an affront to the holiness of God. We don't talk about sin in terms of here's why it's understandable. We talk about sin in terms of this is killing your heart and your life in your relationship with Christ. And so now it's time to move past that in your Christianity. It's time to walk out the victory that we have in Jesus because of Calvary's cross. It's time to walk out your identity of who you are in Christ. You're forgiven. You're accepted. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. When we talk about sin in our lives, when we confess our sin, we talk about it as something that needs to die a thousand deaths over and over again so that we might have joy and fellowship with God, walk with him on a daily basis in the victory that he has given us because of the truth of the gospel. Number two, you can't go around sin problems 
you must go through them. We cannot go around sin problems in our life. We must go through them. Just like Israel is in the wilderness, they're not going to be able to go around that pattern and that part of their uh, life with God now. They're going to have to go right through the wilderness. And the first big and right decision is to turn to God for redemption, for forgiveness, for freedom. God led the Israelites into the wilderness He freed them. He liberated them from the shackles of of slavery in Egypt. But we always keep in mind the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. And his compulsion is our liberation. Just because he leads us into a wilderness where we don't know what's ahead of us, into spots where we don't have water, we don't have food, we don't have the nourishment, we don't have the comforts and the safeties of our previous lifestyles or yesterday's comforts, just because of that doesn't mean that he's not a good God doesn't mean that he's not going to care for us, take care of us in the wilderness of life and help us as we fight sin through his power, through the Holy Spirit he's given us. Israel, just like believers today, need God for deliverance from old sinful habits to unlearn them. We need a God who delivers. We also need a God who heals, who heals those scars that are sometimes, oftentimes, uh, fresh and hard to scab over. We need a good partner. We also need a great physician. In these three murmuring stories, God meets the needs of the Israelites and reveals himself as healer, as provider, of comforter, and one who cares for his people as a great shepherd. Uh, did you, get, you guys catch that verse at the end of Exodus 15, verse 26? It talks about God as healer. I want you to look back again to that verse. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Uh, diligently listen there. I believe that's the word for Torah in the Hebrew. There's, there's something here of God preparing his people for his commandments. To listen and to obey his commandments and his statutes that he's about to give to them. And do that which is right in his eyes. Give ears to his commandments. Keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your God your healer. Now, that doesn't mean that God is going to heal every sickness that we have, although that's ultimately true. He will heal every sickness when we're with him in glory. It will wipe away every tear. We will be complete and new how he has designed us to be with resurrected bodies, the final redemption. Christ comes in glory and raises these bodies from the dead. What it does mean is if you find yourself afflicted by sin, Turn to God as your healer, and he will heal you of, the, of that sin. Um, in this account, God leads Israel to water, and it's bitter. It's bitter water. His instruction to Moses was to cut down a tree and throw it into the bitter water, and it will be sweet. He leads Israel into the wilderness where they have no food, and he, he rains down bread from heaven, manna from heaven. Later on in John, uh, it'll talk about Jesus as the bread of life. He is the living manna that has come to the world, come to the earth. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you, when you look at what Israel's going through in the wilderness, and you turn to Jesus and how he fulfills all of it, Um, Jesus comes into a world that has been poisoned by bitterness of sin. And the one thing that makes life sweet, the water that we need, not only to give us life, but to provide for us everlasting life, 
He takes the bitter waters and he turns them sweet to give us everlasting life through a tree, through Calvary's cross as Jesus died on it. He takes the bitterness of sin and he turns it into a sweet aroma, a fragrant aroma of the victory of Christ, how he died on the cross and three days later he rose again with power over sin and over death to bring life. Moses strikes the rock in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 17, and water flows from the rock, just like Jesus was hanging on the cross, and they struck his body with a spear, and water poured out of his body for the salvation of people. Jesus is the living water that we need for everlasting life. He is the food from heaven that we need on a daily basis. He gives us what we need for today, nothing more. He gives us the grace that we need on a daily basis basis. He doesn't promise tomorrow. He doesn't promise next week. He promises enough grace for today. How do you walk with God in the wilderness of sin? One step at a time by what he provides through his daily grace and mercy to us that we don't deserve and we never could earn. As we turn the pages in, in Exodus now, we're going we're gonna to go to uh, seeing the victory of God. On this mountain, we're going to hold up Moses' hands, and he's going to hold up a rod. And when his hands are up, there's victory. When his hands come down, there's defeat. We're going to turn to the Jethro project. We're going to see that Moses was taking on too much himself. So he has to delegate other people to help him lead the people of Israel. And then he's going to grant us his laws, his merciful, gracious law at Sinai. And so I want to encourage you guys to come back as we continue to, to march on through Exodus. All right, let me pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, um, far too often in my own life, I, uh, I fall to the same patterns, the same sinful patterns that Israel exhibits in the wilderness. And uh, Lord, I, I pray as, as the years go by and the longer I walk with you, it's quicker for me to confess those sins to you. Uh, I pray a, a readiness and a willingness um, not only to confess them, but to see them before they come and and to turn to your gracious daily provision of bread from heaven that you've given to us through Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you that you have not only provided for us physical water, you've provided spiritual living water through Christ. We thank you that it's in Christ that we have everything that we need. We don't need to turn to other things, other people, situations, or circumstances. In you and in you alone, is eternal satisfaction and contentment. In you and in you alone is life and life from the dead, life eternal. God, help our hearts, our souls, our minds to be fixed on the satisfaction, the delight, and the pleasures of Christ as we walk in this wilderness of world that's filled with sin. Give us eyes that can see beyond the vanity fairs of this world and into the celestial city where we will be with you forever and ever. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen.